If you have a Bible, if you could turn to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. The word of the Lord says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So our passage begins with the statement, And now, little children, abide in him. My first question for you is this. How do you feel about being addressed as a little child? What if someone came up to you and said, Hey kid, would that be the way to begin a conversation would that immediately endear you to that person if they're expressing the sentiment that you are a child or what if someone said children calm down and they're looking in your direction i think at first you would think are they talking to me did this person just call me a child actually i think about the interesting phenomenon of the fact that uh, in college you often have you know you go to college and then uh, you get your degree, and then either you go to the master's degree, but let's just say you get a degree in education, right? So you go to college, you get a degree in education, and then let's say that individual immediately goes from their undergrad to teaching high schoolers. So now the people they're teaching are only potentially like four years younger than, than them. And could you imagine uh, that kind of situation where the teacher looks at the other students and say, children, listen up. And I can imagine you being in the class and thinking, you're only a couple years older than me. Who are you calling a child? In other words, what I'm trying to say is that oftentimes the expression being called a child is an insult in our culture. In fact, I, I went and looked up the adjective childish just to make sure that I wasn't making this up. And, you know, these are just weird examples of, of the phrase. And as I looked it up, I saw that the adjective childish meant things pertaining to a child or silly or immature. So right there, that to be childish is to be silly or to be immature often. It has that negative connotation. In fact, that negative connotation is even found in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 3.1, it says, Paul says to the Corinthian believers, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still in the flesh. Notice the parallelism between being a person of the flesh and being an infant in Christ versus being a person of the spirit, which would then correspond to being a mature believer. So even this idea of childish as being immature or silly can even be found in the Bible. But there's also this other idea of being a child that I don't really see in our culture that's also contained in the Bible. And we find it right here in our passage. He calls them little children. And I think when I read that, unless you were a especially proud person, you probably didn't find yourself insulted in this context because you recognize that John was not insulting you. John's not calling you childish or immature, but he's doing something else. Rather than a description or a derogatory comment, this is actually the exact opposite. He's not insulting you, but he's endearing. This is a statement of love, not a statement of of an insult. I think what John's doing here is he's thinking of these 
people, us, these Christians of his day, but by extension, all of us, is he's thinking of them as his precious grandchildren. We have to remember that Paul, that John at this point was an older man. And Lord willing, we will all get to a point where we will be the older man, right? There's going to be a point where we're the oldest person in the room. And so everybody else is younger than us. People, uh, sometimes when they're significantly older than me and they find out my age, sometimes they say, I'm old enough to be your dad. Well, eventually, we're going to be getting to the point where we'll be able to say that to everybody else too, right? I'm old enough to be your dad. And eventually, if the Lord extends our life, we'll be saying to people, I'm old enough to be your granddad. I've not heard that yet, though. People usually don't say that. They just keep that to themselves. But the point is, we'll all get to that point where we're old enough to be everybody's granddad, right? And the question is, when we get to that point, how do we look at everybody else? Do we become cynical people who look down upon everyone else? Or should we be the mature people of the Lord that see these people not as these inferior people who haven't raised to our level, but rather as our family, as the children of God, as our precious grandchildren? Grandpas don't usually and grandmas don't usually look down on their children, right? They don't usually like show you pictures and say, oh, here's my grandchild. Look how immature they are. Look how feeble they are. No, I've never experienced a grandparent that talks bad about their grandchildren, right? Usually they're like showing you these pictures and like, oh, how wonderful, how precious, how adorable. And that's really what John here is doing. He's looking at these little children. He's looking at these young believers and he has a positive disposition toward them. Their affectionate desire of how wonderful these little children are and how much he loves them. And on the flip side, most of us are not at to the point where we are the, the John in the passage. Most of us are the little children, right? Most of us are still at the age where somebody, somewhere, it's old enough to be our granddad, right? And so the other question is on the flip side. As a little child compared to, compared to somebody who's older than the Lord, how do we look at them? What don't you think about that? Not just how the older Christians look at the younger Christians, but how do the younger Christians look at the older Christians? Do we look at them as people who are just merely outdated and need to move along while the new generation comes in? Is that how we look at them? If we do, shame on you. And that's how our culture acts, isn't it? Isn't our culture? Everything in our culture says being old is bad. Right? If you're being old, suppress it and pretend like you're young because being old is something to be ashamed of. And yet the Bible says that being old is something to glory in. That gray hair is the honor that you should stand in the presence of the elderly. We should have this good disposition. We should see those who have walked in the Lord like, like John and recognize that we are little children and that they are more mature. They've walked longer in the Lord than us. And we should honor them for that achievement and recognize that these are our grandfathers in the Lord and we should respect them. You can think about what Paul said to one of the pastoral epistles. He said that you should not rebuke an older As you talk to an older man, you should speak to him as you would a father. Well, just come and speak to them any which way. You should have a reverence and a respect for those who have come before us. Let us not just throw away those who are older than us in the Lord, but let us see that there's something that we can gain and we should honor these people. And that's what I think. There's a familial bond going on of the family of God. And this familial bond just isn't just between those who are older and those who are younger, but it's also between everyone, right? Talking about mothers in the Lord. We have mothers in our congregation that are mothers in the Lord. And we have fathers that are in the Lord. And we have brothers and sisters. And we should be able to have these intimate relationships 
with one another, but he also says that you should treat them as sisters with all holiness, right? Just as you would be appropriate toward your actual sister, so you should be appropriate toward your sister in the Lord, that there's a familial relationship and it's something beautiful and something that we need to guard and protect and keep that family relationship uh, being present in our midst. But I think there's another reality of not just this familiar idea that there are family in the Lord and he's the grandfather and they're the children and, or grandchildren and so forth. But I think there's another idea where we're all, regardless of the age, children of the Lord. We're all these little children. And I think that idea is encapsulated in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. In the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Now I find this passage remarkable because of the context that they are disputing the disciples, right? The disciples, the apostles are disputing who is the greatest. Who will be greater? Will, will Peter be greater? Will John be greater? Or, or, or maybe Abraham. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to be top dog? Besides God, of course. Which human being will be top dog? And In the midst of this proud conversation about who's the greatest, he calls a child in the midst of them, and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you be turned and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the contrast? They're talking about who's the greatest. And he says, unless you become like a child, you're not even going to enter. Why are you worried about being the greatest? How about you worry about entering into the kingdom in the first place? Unless you become a child, you're not even going to make it there. What does he mean by that? Does he mean unless you become mature, childish? No. He means unless you become humble. Unless you realize your weakness. This is a conversation full of proud people. And he's saying that's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is humility. To enter the kingdom, you must be humble. You must recognize that you're a sinner and that God is great. And you must have childlike faith where you believe the promises of God, even if you don't necessarily have proof. But that... You believe because it was spoken to you by God and testified to you through the Spirit. But then he does answer their question. He says, okay, you can't even enter the kingdom unless you become a child. And, by the way, answering your question, who is the greatest? is Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The way into the kingdom is the way to greatness in the kingdom. You never stop being a child. Does that make sense? Just as you enter the kingdom by recognizing that you are a child, so as you are in the kingdom... You will continue to progress in the kingdom by realizing that you are a child. So, in that sense, we are all children. None of us should puff ourselves up and say, We are the learnt ones. We are the ones that have arrived. Come and bow at my feet, for I know the truth and you do not. No. The way into the kingdom is childlikeness, and we should remain children. He can tell this now, little children abide in him. He can tell that to grown men. He can tell that to, say that to people who are older than him. I don't necessarily recommend going around and telling older men, little children. But there is a profound sense that everybody is a little child because it's the only way you can enter the kingdom. All right, let's look into the next phrase. It says, And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So what does this language of abiding in Christ mean? 
I think often we speak Christianese, or we just speak religious languages. We just use these phrases, and they just are just things on our tongue, but we never stop to really think, well, what does that mean? Sometimes we even know what the phrases mean, but we have to, at one point, come to know what these phrases are, right? And by the way, this is why when you evangelize people, be careful not to use Christianese. Be careful to explain what these words mean, right? So don't tell an unbeliever, necessarily, you must abide in Christ. They have no idea what you're talking about. Why would they? Or if you tell an unbeliever, you must be born again. They might respond like Nicodemus, Am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb a second time? By the way, I digress here real quick. I remember being at an election line. This was a couple years ago. And uh, there was a Catholic there. And I started talking to him because there was nothing else to do, right? I'm sitting here in the election line, and it's forever. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I can find someone to evangelize. And I see this this guy, and I start talking to him about God and all this, and I discover that he's Catholic. And I ask him, are you born again? He says, I'm not one of those born-again crazies. I'm not born again. Am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb a second time? I couldn't believe it. I was like, you are the man. You're Nicodemus. And then I quoted Jesus' words and said, unless you are born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. He's just seen his mouth drop. Yeah, you aren't born again. That's the problem. You're not born again. But the point is, that illustrates a lot of times people have no idea what you're talking about. But even worse... If other people don't know what you're talking about, which is why we should clarify, even worse, you don't know what you're talking about, right? You're going around talking about we must be born again, but you think that means to be an evangelical from the South, whatever that means. No. This is biblically defined language that we must understand. To give you an example of some of this Christianese, what about, what does the word hallelujah mean? Or Hosanna? Or El Shaddai? Or Noel? I know what Noel means. It's one of the very dark. No. Uh, these actually have real meanings, right? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hosanna, the Lord's self. The Lord's save. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Noel, Christmas. These actual have real meanings. And so, too, this language of abiding in Christ has an actual real meaning. And this first time that we find this language of abiding in Christ is actually found in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus says that in John chapter 6, verse 56. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So there's a truth that there must be a prerequisite before you abide in Christ. You cannot abide in Christ because of who your mama is, who your daddy is, the fact that you grew up in the South, the fact that you're conservative, the fact that you vote Republican. That is not abiding in Christ. None of that has anything to do with abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ, the prerequisite of abiding in Christ is whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. That's what, now that's itself a metaphor. Hopefully you guys all understand what that means. That means to believe and trust in Jesus. That is what is necessary to abide in me. And notice, not only must we abide in him, but he also will abide in us. And I've recently been convicted about something. Namely, I think that sometimes Christians make the epistles the foundation of their belief. We start off with the epistles, often, and then we go back to the Gospels and, and then maybe the Old Testament or something like that. I think that's the, the common experience of most Christians. And, I, and I've been recently convicted and think, I think that's not right. I think that's the wrong way to do it. I think rather than often starting with the epistles and reading the epistles, reading Jesus in light of the epistles, I think 
that it should be the other way around oftentimes. I think that Jesus should be the foundation of most of our teaching, and not only should be, he is the foundation of most of our teaching. The reason he should be the foundation is because that's the way it was revealed. Jesus is the foundation. Ephesians 2.19 says this, The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but who's the cornerstone? Jesus is the cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets are supporting stones. What do I mean by this? Well, if you want to understand what the New Testament has to say about eschatology, many might jump into First and Second Thessalonians or the book of Revelation, right? Because the book of Revelation is all about the end times, which I don't necessarily wrong you for that. But perhaps, maybe you should start off with Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 when he explains his eschatology. Start there and then understand that what Paul is doing, and I'm not the only one who believes this, Paul in First and Second Thessalonians is commentary, doing a commentary on what Jesus says. So if you have the framework of Matthew 24 and then plug in who the man of lawlessness is, it makes perfect sense. The same thing with the book of Revelation. You have the framework of what Jesus says, and then you go into the book of Revelation, and all of a sudden, the seals make more sense. Because you look at the seals, go back to Matthew 24 and say, oh, this sounds a lot like what, what Jesus said. I'll give you a different example. Jesus talks about that the Father has given him a people. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never lose them, and I raise them up in the last day. Or he says that I have given eternal life to all that the Father has given me. Jesus says this. And it's common and fashionable today to say that all he's talking about is the fact that he gave Old Testament believers to Jesus when he came here on the earth. It's called transitional saint theology. And there is some truth to that. But is that really all he's talking about? I don't think so. I think that Jesus is the foundation of what Paul is talking about when he talks about that he has blessed us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Or those of me foreknew, he also predestined. And those of me predestined, he also called. And those of me called, he also justified. This teaching of Paul finds its source in Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of the teaching of election. One more example. If you want to understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about that you are justified by faith alone, where did Paul get that from? The foundation of that teaching doesn't come from Paul. The foundation of that teaching comes from Jesus. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus, it tells Nicodemus that just as the serpent be lifted up and whoever looks... At the serpent will say, so is the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever looks at the Son of Man will be saved. Jesus is the foundation of so many teachings. And the rest of the New Testament often expands upon what Jesus says. And you'll never find a contradiction between what Jesus and Paul are saying, or Jesus and the epistles. You should always recognize that there is perfect harmony with what Jesus says and what they else say. So I'm not saying that, we, that Jesus has a priority in the sense that we should... Believe Jesus and not believe his apostles. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying oftentimes if you want to understand what the apostles are talking about, go back and see if Jesus ever said anything about this. Because that's where they heard it from. And that's where they learned it from first. And then as the Holy Spirit continued to move on them, they reflected on these teachings and then talk about that. Just as we see the idea of being born again in the epistles, where did they hear that? From Jesus. This originated from Jesus. So, so too... I think that this language of abiding in Christ that Paul, that John is talking about here in 1 John chapter 2 finds its source in Jesus. So let's look at that. Where does Jesus teach what it means to abide in him? He teaches that in John chapter 15. So if you could 
open up your Bibles to John chapter 15, and we'll see what Jesus means when he says, or when John says, reflecting Jesus, abide in Christ. John chapter 15, we'll look at verse 1. 1 through 5. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that in me does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. There's that language. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now this text is so rich and it's the foundation of so many Christian teachings. It's the foundation of why we came here, the concept of abiding in Christ. It's also what Paul means when he says that we are in Christ. Has anybody been reading the Bible and found that phrase, in Christ? It shows up all over the place. Sometimes it's in Christ, sometimes it's in Jesus, sometimes it's in the Lord. But we see that phrase, in Christ, over and over. What does that mean? Interesting enough, you can go through all of the epistles about that phrase, in Christ, and you know what you'll find? Paul never tells us what he means by in Christ. He just uses the phrase. What does that mean? It's right here. The reason Paul doesn't tell us because it didn't originate in Paul, it originated in Jesus. He got that from Jesus. He expected his original audience to understand that he was talking about the same thing that Jesus was talking about here in John chapter 15. So this text is very fruitful, and it's a source of so many profound Christian teachings. So the first thing we'll notice is Jesus begins there in verse 1, I am the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the source of life. Outside of the vine, there is no life. You receive no life from the vine by looking at the vine, by knowing the vine, by walking around the vine. You have to be in the vine to get the life from the vine. Just think about the woman's umbilical cord. If you're not connected to the umbilical cord, no life will be flowing through you. The only way for a baby to connect to the woman is through the umbilical cord. So, too, the only way we can get the life that's contained in the vine is by being in the vine. Jesus is life. Life is found only in the vine. Outside of the vine... Only is death. And this is very similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can only get life in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus said elsewhere that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Only the truth has the power to set you free. And it turns out that the truth... Remember, Pilate said, what is truth? It's a good question. But a better question is, who is truth? Because truth turns out to be a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Truth is not that you are a, some slime that came here for no reason and is going into nothing. That's a lie, and that won't set you free. Truth is not that there is no God. There is a God, and he will be your judge. And he also will be your savior if you let him. Truth is found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You cannot make it to the Father outside of Christ. You must be connected to the vine. And that's also what we see in this passage right here. How do you get to the vine dresser? Who is the vine dresser? According to John chapter 15. Who is the vine dresser? God the Father. Well, how do you get to the vine dresser? By being in the vine. The vine dresser is not interested in those who aren't in the vine. You see that? If you're not in the vine, the vine dresser don't have time for you. If you are in the vine, 
then you will have the relationship with the Father as being a vine dresser. This is exactly what Jesus said. Apart from me, uh, you can never go into the Father. And notice what the vine dresser does. Look at verse 2. God the vine dresser does to those who are in the vine. He says, every branch that in, that's in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So, the vine dresser, which is the father, does two things. He's responsible for removing false believers and casting them straight to hell. He's also responsible for pruning true believers so that they may bear more fruit. God the Father is the eliminator, and God the Father is the preserver. That's his job. The vine dresser cuts you off, or the vine dresser causes you to be pruned and produce more fruit. Now I want you to think about that implication or the implication of that phrase that he prunes us so that we may bear more fruit. What's the implication of that? The implication of that is you've not arrived. Think about it. Why would the vine dresser be pruning you so that you bear more fruit if you've already arrived? You haven't arrived. God is saying still you need to go deeper. Still you need to go farther. We can all still grow. And I say we, I mean me. I mean you. You can still grow. You have not arrived. It is true that Jesus is pleased with you because you're in his mind. You are already clean. You are already saved. But it's also true that he wants you to continue to pick up your cross and to follow him. He wants you to continue to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. So the question I have for you, and I want you to think about this, is are you satisfied with your spiritual condition? Before this sermon, before this text, as you looked at yourself, did you feel like you've arrived? That you're just doing A+. plus, Right? I got it all together. I just got to make sure I don't mess this thing up. I just got to keep going and keep doing what I've always been doing. And if that's the case, you should look at this passage again and say, the Father is saying, you're doing good. Keep going. He's pruning you. So that you may bear more fruit. And there was a group of Christians that thought they had spiritually arrived. And they're found in Revelation 3.14. This is the Laodicean church. And they think that they're hot stuff. But Christ says you need a hot and a cold. But you're rather lukewarm. And they say this of themselves. I'm rich. I prospered. And need nothing. Not realizing that they're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. God's blessing is upon me, they thought. But God had a different evaluation of them. Because they had ceased from being like children, but became proud and self-sufficient. And thought they had made it. And he tells these people that they should go back to him so that they may see once more. And that they can continue to grow. Again, that's not to say that we're all the lay of this in church. But it is to say that we need to recognize that the Father is satisfied, us, satisfied with us in Christ. But he still has more work to do. So we should... Have that appropriate self-evaluation of ourselves, right? If you think you're just hot stuff and everybody should just simply be like you, the Father don't think that about you. The Father thinks that he is still wanting to prune you so that you bear more fruit and that there are still areas in your life that the Father wants to grow you in. But there should be areas in your life that you want the Father to grow you in and that you're striving with the Father who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you're saying, yes, this area of my life is still needs to be more delivered over to you. We still have to grow. We should not be satisfied. We should constantly be striving for more holiness. And there's another reality to this. Not only do I need to grow, and I'm not just saying that as a 
figurative description for a sermon application. I need to grow in the Lord. This is true of me. This is true of you. This is true of every one of us. You need to grow in the Lord. But it's not just true of that, though. It's also, again, true of your neighbor. What do you think about that? If I need to grow in the Lord, then you need to grow in the Lord. Does that make sense? And that means that as I see your sin, or as you see my sin, we should not be surprised. I'm really shocked that you just sinned. No. Now, again, if you, if you are out there killing people, I would be pretty shocked. I don't expect anyone's out here an axe murderer. So there are some things that could shock me. But if I just see common, everyday sin in your life, we should not be surprised. Because just as I need to grow in the Lord, so do you need to grow in the Lord. And that's why First Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. We should recognize that we're all simultaneously sinners and saints. People who are justified, but not yet glorified. That's why Matthew chapter 7, verse 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure... It will be measured onto you. So as you spend time with Christians, and they fail you, and they sin against you, or you just see them sin, do not be surprised. Do not slander them, but pray for them. Recognize that just as you have many failings, they have many failings. Just as the Father is working on you, the Father is working on them. Let's be people of love so that our love covers a multitude of sin. Last Wednesday night, we read Ecclesiastes 7.20, which reminds us that Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant curse you, and your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that true? Sometimes we act shocked. I can't believe he did that. He can't believe he said that thing. Why would he do that? Have you done that? Do you remind you who judge others? Do you judge yourself? Again, that doesn't mean that we never call people out from sin. But it does mean that we should not come around with a self-righteous, hypocritical attitude and a spirit where we're just ready to condemn everyone else and then we want everyone else to give grace on us. We have a list of excuses of why we aren't yet arrived and yet we expect everyone else to be arrived. No. The Father's pruning us. The Father's pruning them. There's one more principle before we move back to our first John passage that I want to point out from John chapter 15. Look at verse 5. Jesus says this. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There's one more principle here. It's that we are completely dependent on Jesus Christ, not only for salvation. You cannot be saved without being in the vine, right? We know that. You have to believe in Jesus, and by believing in Jesus, you'll be incorporated in the vine. We all know that. But do we also know that our sanctification, our holiness, our bearing fruit, our living for righteousness cannot be done apart from Christ. You have no power in and of yourself. You cannot just pull up your bootstraps and try harder. You must lean in on your relationship to Jesus Christ. In Christ, you have the victory. In yourself, you have nothing but defeat. You can only find power in Jesus Christ. And so what we must do is we must lean into our relationship with Jesus Christ. The way that the Father is pruning us so we may bear more fruit is by leaning in on Christ and moving toward him. And the, the way that the Satan is trying to keep us down and keep us into sinning is by pulling us away from Christ. And so that's something that's very helpful for us to remind ourselves because the natural reaction of when we sin is always to run from Christ. It's always to cower and to be ashamed and to wonder if he, if he wants to hear from us anymore. There's an old saying that this book, the Bible will keep you out of sin, and sin will keep you out of this book. Anybody heard that phrase? At least know that theology. 
Most of us have experienced that theology in life. As we're sinning and walking away, we don't want to go to church anymore. We don't want to read the Bible. We flip off the Christian channel. We stop listening to sermons. And we start wandering from God. Sometimes it's because of shame. Sometimes it's just the wandering process. But we have to remind ourselves that God, the Father, has a loving disposition toward us and is always calling us home. He who, draw, he who draws to the Lord, the Lord will draw near to him. And so if we can do nothing apart from Christ, and the only way that we can ever find forgiveness and have any strength at all to live a holy life is by drawing near to the Lord. It's not magic. If you draw nearer to the Lord, you'll get more of this life-giving power, and you'll be able to conquer the sins that you have not yet conquered. It's by going deeper and drawing into the Lord. All right, so let's return back to our passage of 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, with this in mind. Now, little children, abide in him. So what does it mean to abide in him? It means that we remain in Jesus. It means that we remain in the vine. It means that we hold the faith and do not abandon the Lord and return back to the word. It means that we are saved and sanctified by remaining in Christ, the union with him through faith alone. And why should we abide in him? That's the next phrase. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So our confidence and our lack of shame is dependent on us abiding in him. That's very important. Very important for us to see. If you do not abide in him, what happens? We don't have to speculate. If you do not abide in him, doesn't matter how much you think that you did abide in him or have abided in him. John chapter 15 is crystal clear. Those who abide in him, quote unquote, that's them perceiving that they abide in him, that do not bear fruit, they will be cut off like withered branches and thrown and burned in the fire. It's not your perception of abiding in him that's important. It's not the fact that you used to abide in him that's important. It's the fact that you are abiding in him that's important. You are abiding in him currently. Not past, but present. You must abide in him. So that when he appears, we may, not, we ha- may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. And what a horrible reality. I want you to think about this. Jesus is the capstone of all of history. Right? That's what we're all moving toward. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the whole story of the Bible. That's the whole story of the world. We're all moving toward that. As you age, you're not only aging toward death, you're more importantly aging toward the end of the world and the coming of Christ. This is it. This is the finale. Some of you may watch movies. Who wants to watch a movie unless it's a really bad movie and then just skip off the last 30 minutes? Yeah, I'm not interested in the, the climax, the conclusion. It's very disappointing. In fact, there have been some shows and some movies that are really good, but the ending is so bad that you end up walking away thinking, I hate that movie. Because the ending was such a disappointment. The ending is the climax. So we're all moving toward, right? How does this great problem be resolved? So the ending of our lives and the ending of the world is that the coming of Christ. But how terrible would it be if your end, where this is all leading up to, is your humiliation and your shame and your cowering? I want you to think about that. Your entire life is building up to a moment where you'll be humiliated and ashamed and cowering. He says, what does a proper man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? You fail. I don't care if you're rich, you're famous, you had everything you wanted in this life. If you end up, in the end, standing before Christ, cowering and ashamed and running from him, you failed. You will not pass go. You go straight immediately to jail. 
to a place called the Lake of Fire, and you'll never get out of there. It's terrible. It's a horrible reality. And it's something that we are warned against. It's something that we don't have to do. And the answer is abide in him. That's the answer. The way that doesn't have to be. The opposite of that is also true. Instead of not having any confidence, we can be bold. We can boldly approach the throne of grace. Instead of shrinking from him, we can run to him. Instead of having shame, we will have honor and power and wealth and riches. Christ cannot be our worst nightmare, but he can be our greatest dream. And the, the way it is, again, not magic. It's abide in him. You must abide in him. You must abide in him, one, by being in him. You must, two, abide in him by preserving in him. That's what we see in the very next verse, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And here's the other side. This is, this is always the biblical tension. We're talking about that in Sunday school. There's always this biblical tension. And people, as Ray pointed out, always try to get rid of one for the sake of the other. Right? People always say, I'm secure in Christ. I've been born again and nothing can cast me from him. All, this, all that... All those who have come to the Father, I will never cast out. That's my only verse I ever know. I don't know the verse that says we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling. I don't like that verse. That verse is out of my Bible. I only accept the verses that say he who began to work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's false. You should hold on to both. And it's right here in this passage. You must abide in him. Well, it's also true in verse 29. If you've been born of him... You will abide in him, and you will be righteous. All you've got to do to see this connection is go back to John chapter 15. Who does he cut off? Who are removed from him? Those who do not bear fruit. What is that fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness. This is being righteous. If you are righteous, you will not be cut off. If you are fruitless and unrighteous, you will be cut off. But you see in verse 29, the necessary result of being born of him... Look at verse 29 again. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone, that means everybody, who practices righteousness has been born of him. You being righteous is dependent on the fact that you've been born of him. And what does he say? Those that are in me, the Father prunes so that they may bear much fruit. And you can go back to John chapter 15, verse 16. And it says that I appointed you so that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would abide. Those who are born again are truly in the vine. Those who are truly in the vine have Jesus, the, vine dre- the Father, the vine dresser, that prunes us, and he's appointed us so that our fruit would produce, based on that relationship with Christ, and not only that it would produce, but that it would abide, and so the reality of verse 28 will never happen to you. You will not be cut off. You will not stop abiding. You will continue to abide, and you are secure in Christ. But not because you're presumptuous, but because of his work. He guards your faith, that he keeps you going. You never abandon him. You hold on to him. So the real question that we have today is, are you in Christ? Are you in the vine? Have you been born again? Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you resting in him? Do you have a choice to make? you have a choice to make here? You are in this passage somewhere. You're in this passage as someone who will cower in shame, or you're in this passage as someone who will be bold and receive glory at that coming. you have a choice to make? If you're uncomfortable with that language, consider the words of Deuteronomy 13. 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Choose life. Abide in Christ. Be secure in him and be glorified on that great day. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that we can abide in you. We thank you that even though 
we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, it is you who works in us both to will and to work for his, for your good pleasure. We thank you, Lord, that those in you have the vine dresser that prunes us, that has appointed us, that we may bear fruit, and that may do it forever. God, we thank you so much for our security in Christ, and we thank you so much for our salvation. Lord, I just pray that if anybody in this room does not know you, anybody in this room are superficially connected, which is borne out by the fact that they bear no fruit, that they would be convicted, that they would jump into the vine and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name.